to start, I'd just like to thank you, Michael, for coming on the podcast. I've been following you for many years. I remember when I first started my degree, I started following your sketching on Instagram, and I always looked up to the level of detail and the, as you can see right there, the um, yeah, the real the way you would communicate your designs. And um, yeah, now I've graduated uni and I made the podcast and decided to reach out, and you were very gracious to accept. So yeah, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to to talk to another designer and uh, yeah, thanks for the kind words. You know, I, I really just, I, I love what we do. And so I, I try to share that as, as much as we can, you know, on, on YouTube, on, on Instagram. Mm. Uh, Cause I really feel like it's, it's our job as designers, not only to, to practice design, to be practitioners of it, but also to be advocates for it because yeah so many people don't know what it is we do so I try to demystify that mm, yeah there's still so many people who doubt the value of, of industrial design yeah yeah that's great um how would you des describe your design philosophy and what sets your approach apart from others in the industry um you know I think I'll start with the the second part of that question first I, I think what sets me apart now is that I've been I've been doing this for a while. I've been doing mm. this for twenty five years, uh, as of this year, and I worked for half of my career, half of those twenty five years, on the corporate side, and half on the consulting side. Um, you know, big companies like Nike, big consulting firms like Frog Design, and so I really try to kind of synthesize all of my experience and take a really tailored approach with my clients. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a very kind of cookie cutter process. Um, a little bit like, you know, how we're always trained to be empathetic um, to the end user as designers. I try to take that approach kind of to my design practice as well. And I try to be very empathetic to my clients and understand what it is they're trying to achieve, what the goals are, and then I try to set up a really custom tailored process uh, for each project to get after those goals. Mm. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that sets me apart. I think the other thing is that I'm very strict about, I only ever take three clients at a time. And so every client knows they're going to get at least 30% of my time mm. um, and not just be passed off to interns or junior designers, uh, because I really want to make sure that everything that comes from my design practice comes comes for me. And mm. in some ways you could say that's a limiting factor to the scale of, of my business, um, but it ends up with very happy clients mm. um, yeah, and work that I'm proud of. So I, I think that, um, you know, on the corporate side, I would hire firms sometimes and you just, you know, the partners come in to sell you the project and then you realize, oh, it's just a bunch of, young people who aren't getting paid very much actually doing the work. And I didn't want to set up my business that way. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think that's what, those are the two things that separate my practice apart. I think when, when people hire me, um, it's never, it's never the cheapest option. It's, it's because, you know, they trust that they're going to get a good result. And I, I see design as a trust business. Like we're, we're hired to solve very ambiguous difficult to define problems and who are you, who are you going to hire to solve that problem? You're going to hire someone you trust. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think my, my philosophy is somewhat twofold in that 
you know, I really feel like um, there's kind of the business aspect of what we do and then the cultural aspect of what we do. You know, as, as a designer, I want to design products that sell. I'm not really interested in making art pieces. Um, mm. I love art. I love music. I could, I consume those things. I'm inspired by those things. But I want something that can kind of help as many people as possible that mm. people can really enjoy. And my philosophy there is that, you know, people, they don't own Picassos. They don't live in Frank Lloyd Wright design homes. They, they have watches and sneakers and cars and, and the humble things that are all around them. So if we can kind of elevate those things a little bit more and make those things a little bit more lovable, I, I feel like I'll have done my job. Um, yeah. So I have kind of the, the commerce side of my approach is like, okay, I want to design something that, that can be manufactured uh, and solves a problem and sells really well. And then I want to also elevate that object as high as I can to become a, a cultural piece. And I, I think I don't see those two goals in conflict. I actually think they help each other, right? Mm. Like the more I can design something that becomes a part of culture, well, also hopefully the better it will sell um, and the more people can enjoy it. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. Um, maybe just going back to your experience, you mentioned you work for some large corporations, maybe just a brief summary of um, yeah, the, the professional life you followed over the last 25 years. Congratulations, by the way, for 25 years. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting too. I think when I, I mean, my, my, the latter half of my mid forties now, and when you're in your early twenties, that seems so far away. Um, but you know, I'll be doing this for another 25 years. Right. Mm. So it's, I think of, you know, people like Frank Lloyd Wright, who didn't design the Guggenheim, his most, uh, you know, the thing he's the most known for until his seventies. Right. Mm. So design is a, a can be an incredibly long-lived um, uh, vocation if you if you do it right. I, I started, you know, I started my education. I went to the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, I also did an exchange semester at the Cleveland Institute, Institute of Art, and then I studied for a summer in Milan as well, which was amazing. Um, after school, I worked for a really small design firm called Evo. Um, they're kind of in between Boston and New York City, uh, basically in the in the New England, if you know your American geography. Um, and it was a small firm. I was the fifth employee. Uh, when I left four and a half years later, they were about 12 people, but they had great clients. Uh, we did work with, uh, with Bose, with Nike, with Burton Snowboards. Um, and I, I worked on the Nike account pretty exclusively towards the end of my time there. I also did some projects for Nike while I was still in college. So I, I always had this kind of connection to Nike. Um, when I when I was thinking about leaving, you know, I, I'd been there for four years, four and a half years. And, um, you know, I was like, we were doing good work for, for happy clients. But I noticed a lot of times our work you know, either our projects would get canceled, you know, we would do the work, you'd check up six months later and be like, how's that project going? Oh, that got canceled, or maybe it got radically changed. And I wanted to go explore what was it that I was missing? Like we did design work that the client loved, like why didn't it go to production? And so 
I, I knew I wanted to go to the corporate side. Um, at Evo, I had the amazing opportunity to work on everything from from Nerf guns to wine glasses and everything in between. And I just really enjoyed working on footwear. Mm. Um, so um, Nike asked me to come in-house. I, I jumped at the chance. I thought I'd be there for about two years. I was like, I want to learn what I'm missing and then go back to the consulting side. But I love I just loved working at Nike so much. I mm. ended up being almost eight years. Um, mm. At first I was in sportswear, which is a new division at the time. And then I was the 13th designer ever to work in the Jordan division. And I got to work directly with Michael Jordan, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, uh, Derek Jeter, a bunch of amazing athletes. Mm. Traveled the world uh, with Jordan. And then um, when, uh, when Nike purchased Converse, they asked me to be one of the design directors for Converse. Um, which was another amazing experience, you know, to go from, you know, these brands that were all about sport and innovation to, okay, how do we develop this brand that's a hundred years old? It was literally mm. celebrating its hundredth birthday uh, and basically had the Eames chair footwear, which is the Chuck Taylor. What do mm. we do with that? Um, so I spent three years on the Converse side. Um, and then my my mentor, uh, John Hoke, who's the chief design officer at Nike, was pitching some ideas for me to come back to the Nike side, maybe as design director for basketball or design director for Jordan, when Frog Design knocked on my door to be creative director for San Francisco, the San Francisco studio. Um, for those that you don't know, Frog Design, you know, legendary design firm, designed the original Apple Macintosh, the original Sony Walkman. And so I just kind of had to do it. I, I talked to John about it. He was like, I think you got to do it. <laughs> he's like, if you don't like it, you know, call me in two weeks. Like, I'll get you a job back here. But I think, he's like, I think if if you don't do it, I think you'll just hate me. So um, with his blessing, left Nike and um, worked at Frog for a few years. Got to work with Google, Motorola, Honda, um, Procter & Gamble, a bunch of really big companies. Um but I, I quickly started missing the depth that I had working in-house. And so one of our uh, big clients was this company called Sound United. Uh, and they owned a bunch of high-end audio brands. Now they own even more. At the time, they owned uh, Polk Audio, Definitive Technology, and a smaller brand called Boom. And then mm -hmm. later, they bought Denon and Marantz and Bowers and Wilkins. Uh, so they asked me to be chief design officer over industrial design, packaging, branding, all the all the marketing creative. Um, and so I, I left, I left at that as well. That was like an amazing opportunity, built a team of 20, 25 people, um, and then got that up and running, stayed for five years, and then started my own independent practice in 2017. And we've been busy like <laughs> ever since. Uh, we've done work with uh, SAIC. SAIC is a Chinese car company. Uh, ARC, which is an electric speedboat company based out of LA. Um, Hasbro, Cole Han, CCM Hockey. Um, so, so really kind of work that kind of spans mm. uh, the gambit. And then it's my, my two biggest clients right now um, are actually a bio-based textile company named Carnegie. Uh, which which owns um, a 
a company called Kire that makes architectural products out of recycled PET water bottles and, and um, a brand called Defender that makes footwear with, for people with diabetes. So it's really just, I, I love learning. I love working on different things, working with interesting people. Um, I'm very collaborative. So for me, it's just about who are some interesting people that I can work with and mm. where we can push the boundaries and do some new things together. Yeah, that's the interesting thing I've always found about your work is like you do such a wide variety of work. And I know overseas, like in Australia, that's quite common because we have this very small market. We generally work um, on a lot of different types of projects. We don't specifically like, you know, focus on one type of um, product. But in America, that's not necessarily the case, right? You generally become very specific in one like furniture design or something like that, automotive design, if, if, I'm, not right, if I'm not wrong. Um, whereas correct. your career has been very broad the whole time, you know, like even in the back, you'll see, you know, push bike to chair yeah. yeah I you know I I feel like I Raymond Lowy has always been an idol of mine um and you know he worked on everything he's for those of you who don't know Raymond Lowy one of the the founders of the industrial design as a profession went to school to be an engineer uh before World War One. Uh, moved to New York after World War One. was was born and raised in France. Um, couldn't get a job uh, in you know designing products and and was just doing anything he could. He was designing window displays for department stores and doing fashion illustrations for Vogue magazine, and then kind of broke his way into industrial design and but always kind of just worked on everything. He did the the, the livery for Air Force One. He design you know the UPS logo he you know just like and and steam trains and boats and and just you know that that sense that you know he his thing is his quote is a good designer can design anything mm. I've always thought one he embodied that and two it helped me to see things that way and mm. uh, I, I feel like in the United States and I didn't realize maybe how regional this was to the United States but in the early 2000s, there was this trend towards like hyper nichification and mm. in, in, in not just in design, like in all consultants, like, and even when I first started my practice, you know, potential clients would be like, what's the one thing you do yeah. that you do? And I just like, I, why would I, if I did a one thing, I just go work in house again. Mm. Like, and I, I know design footwear design consultants who specialize in footwear, specialize in consumer electronics. And I'm not, so no judgment. That's totally fine if that's what you want to do. For me, if I was just going to do footwear, I'd just go work at Nike. If I was just going to do consumer electronics, I'd just go work at Apple. You know, I'd, mm. but the, the beauty of being a consultant in, for me personally is getting to work across all these different industries mm. and they start to inform each other. That's the cool part is like, I'm, I'm learning, working with Kire about, you know, recycled PET and making these architectural products that have acoustic benefits. And, you know, as I was working with them on, on a new baffle, ceiling baffle to help reduce the echoes in open office spaces, I was like, oh man, I remember at Nike, we had this grind material from like reground sneakers, connected them to my, my old friends at Nike. We ended up doing a collaborative product that this architectural baffle that's filled with reground sneakers to absorb more acoustics. And to me, that's like obviously a super tangible example, mm. but in so many different ways, you know, working with ARC, I've learned working with like 
uh, hull designer and learning about fluid dynamics and just like all these interesting things and they just can't help but kind of influence each other yeah. and I, I feel like a little bit like a there's like a like as a juggler there's a right amount of balls to keep in the air like too many and they fall and not enough and it's not very interesting and mm -hmm. so you know it's kind of keeping that right amount of thing of balls in the air to keep it interesting for me yeah that's the kind of thing i found i've, I've just graduated uni end of last year and the first thing everyone says is oh what what um field are you going to go into what's what are you going to specialize in but it's like i've i've never had an answer because i've always just like i don't want to specialize in anything it's why would you do that? Like, why would you close your options open? You know, but yeah, well, I I just say my specialty is applied creativity. Mm, yeah, exactly. That's what, I, that's what I work on, and you know, I'm also really frank with I'm I'm a good consultant in that I don't take work that I'm not suited for. Um, mm. and you know, I remember a few years ago, um, there's a kind of like an adventure travel luggage brand here in the United States called Eagle Creek. And an old classmate of mine from school was the head of VP of product there. And he reached out to do a project and he was like, Hey, I'd love to do a, like for you to design a backpack in kind of a line extension in the existing design language. And I was like, yeah, I can't bid on that. And he was like, why not? Are you too busy? I'm like, no, it's not that I'm too busy. It's just that as a consultant, I can't in good conscience bid on it because I can't do that project better, faster, cheaper than your in-house team. Your in-house team, I understand maybe you're a little short staffed right now, but your in-house team is going to be able to design that backpack in your existing design language better than I can. So you won't be happy with yeah. the result. You'll you'll think it costs too much. It's taking too long. I won't be happy enough with it to show it in my portfolio. Mm. And he was like, okay. And I was like, but what I would love to do for you is you're this adventure travel brand that is kind of focused on boomers. And you're missing out on kind of like younger people traveling. Mm -hmm. Millennials are coming into more money. And I would love to design for you a whole line of bags around how, around millennial adventure travelers. Mm -hmm. And he was like, all right, well, thanks. <laughs> and I was like, I'll probably never hear from him again. But two months later, he was like, okay, we, we've been thinking about what you said and here's the brief for the project you want. Yeah. And for me, it's about, it's, I don't specialize in a product in a product type, but I do specialize in a certain kind of project. And that, to me, that project is something that pushes the boundaries a little bit, that helps kind of define or redefine a brand, um, and uh, is is something that's a little bit more daring, hmm. for lack of a better word. That's good. Uh, can you walk us through a recent project that you worked on? and the challenges you faced in the design process, maybe how you overcome them. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I could talk to a few. Um, Obviously not to disclose any NDA. Yeah, no, of course, of course. Uh, you know, I think I mentioned that brand um, Defender that makes uh, products for people with diabetes. We have a prototype here. This is, this is on the market now. So this is a, a leg brace. For people with diabetes um what i loved about working on this project is that you know i was putting all of my my footwear knowledge to work right mm. but you know in a category told that's totally different medical category um and it was a challenging project because it was it was a four-year pro project um i've never worked on a project that took so long but the amount of just testing you know clinical testing 
um, and the, the technical um, needs of it were so high, even though, you know, basically kind of looks like someone took an Air Jordan, turned it into a snowboard boot. That's kind of the trick of it is that it looks very simple. Um, but underneath this, you know, there's an injection molded brace that's all underneath all this, this leather that kind of locks the leg at a specific angle. Mm. There's a, it's a molded carbon fiber uh, in this fat piece here. Um, there's all these different technical things going on inside of this 22 millimeter foam package under the foot. It's like four different materials. Um, and so, and it was a startup. It was a startup that was um, up until a year before the launch. So first three years was entirely self-funded by the founder. So, you know, every new sample we made, every new test we made, I knew he was paying for it himself out of his <laughs> own savings. Um, and so, you know, I, I wanted to be as efficient as possible for him, but also, you know, we had to get it right. And mm. so the challenges were that it just like wasn't working. You know, our, our initial approach was completely different than this. Um, it had more of these like external side braces and look much more like a medical product and it wasn't functioning properly that the whole point of this product is to um, make sure to minimize pressure under the foot um, because that's where diabetic foot ulcers mm. happen and the only way for them to heal is to alleviate that pressure and so it kept just testing poorly we had this hypothesis of how it should work and it wasn't working and about a year and a half in uh, we were doing just a workshop. Um, my my intern, um, myself, the engineer, and um, and the founder, and you know, I was just like, you know, we've been thinking about this like a, a medical product, and maybe we just need to think about this in a totally different way. And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, maybe we need to basically like build it more like a shoe, and build it in a shoe factory, and then put all of the technical parts underneath. So we could kind of keep adjusting them quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas whereas before the technical parts were exposed. So they were, you know, those tools are very expensive and every adjustment was very expensive. F building it this way allowed us to experiment a lot more quickly because everything happens under the skin of it. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as we did that, it was like, it was like a breakthrough where we were just like, all of a sudden things started happening. The clinical trials and tests started going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Before we knew it, we were outpacing the competitors um, in terms of like the pressure underfoot pressure tests. Um, and it's kind of amazing to see this this product like working now. I mean, it's out, it's been out in the market for six months or so. Um, John Cleese of Monty Python fame uh, actually just wore this. He had a he had a foot wound that wouldn't heal for like three years. <laughs> Literally, mm -hmm. imagine having an open wound on your foot for three years. Uh, and he was in this for 26 days and it healed. Well, wow. it's kind of amazing to be a part of it. I'm a disability support worker. So, and I work with a lot of people with diabetes and yeah, like anything to help them through their, their pains in life is great. Yeah. yeah. So you, I mean, you understand the challenges too of like, you mm. know, if you have diabetes, you, you lose sensitivity in mm. your fingers and in your, and so we had to make sure it could go on very easily, come off very easily, but also be when you put it on, make sure it goes on right every time. Mm. And then, you know, so it had to function, had to relieve pressure, had to be easy to put on and take off. 
And then three, the third thing it had to do was it had to aesthetically reduce the stigma because you need mm -hmm. to wear this. If you wake up to go to the bathroom at 3 a.m., you have to put it on. Yeah. You have to wear it to work. You have to wear it to the grocery store. If you if you just even step for just a few minutes without the boot on your wound, you you extend the healing process by weeks. Mm -hmm. So we had to create something that you know, felt more like a sneaker so that when you put jeans on, you 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 reduce the kind of the stigma associated with mm. it. Okay. And I love that. I love working collaboratively. Um, mm. Similarly, when I was working with ARC, um, ARC Boat Company out of LA, uh, almost all the engineers come from SpaceX, like incredibly smart engineers, but they're you know, building this $300,000 sport boat um, and they've never made a consumer product, right? So not only to have to design the boat, but also just teach them about the kind of tolerances that you need to have on a really high-end consumer product. Um, and working collaboratively with them is to me like the, the fun part of it is, is, mm. is kind of seeing those light bulbs turn on. Um, that project was amazing because it was I was going up against two really big firms. I won't, I won't say their names, but they're international big firms and, and me. And I, I asked the founder, I was like, Hey Mitch, just like, why did you choose me over these big firms just for my edification? So I, my education. And uh, he's like, you know, because we felt like in choosing you, Michael, not only would we get an amazing designer, but we'd get someone who would teach us mm. and who would be patient with us and, and wouldn't just, you know, throw us a CAD file and be like, good luck. And, you know, that project again was um, like about 18 months long, maybe. And, you know, I'm on their company Slack and just bouncing things back and forth with their engineers and redlining things. And just, you know, I was like, okay, like we can't achieve that, but what can we achieve? And, you know, flying down to the production facility to look at the way like two seams come together mm. on, on the bench seat. Um, you know, so everything from like, what's the overall design language and strategy for the aesthetic of this to like, what stitch are we using on the seat? Because mm. um, that's what they, that's what they needed. You know, not every client needs that much um, work from me, but when they do, I want to make sure that I can be flexible enough in my process to get them what they need. Mm. I think that's an interesting point you were saying, like, as a designer, we're not necessarily just designers, we're also educators, and not just for other designers, but even for clients and, you know, various industry people. Yeah, it's an interesting process. Um, how do you balance the need for functionality and aesthetics? Obviously, you have a very strong aesthetic style, but how do you, yeah, how do you balance that with the functional aspect? To me, they're kind of the same thing. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I feel like, um, and, and maybe this is just my kind of education from Nike in a way, you know, everything that we were trying to do at Nike was to kind of exaggerate function to make function visible. Mm. Right. Like, um, it's just, you know, you look at like every kind of design detail on a Nike, it's, it's usually just making a functional aspect of, of the product visible to, to the consumer. Um, and so for me, it's, it's very intertwined and, like I said, I'm very collaborative. I really love working with engineers and, and, you know, for me, I'd rather show a sketch to an engineer uh, before showing it to another designer. Mm. I, I, I like, and I love working with kind of creative engineers who can 
who can be collaborative back. And one of my favorite engineers that I ever worked with, this guy Alex, and I, I remember I'd give him, a, I'd show him a sketch and be like, you know, Alex, like I wanted to kind of do something like this functionally. And this is how I think it would work. What do you think? And he would never say no. He would always be like, well, let me think about it. Let me think about it. I'll talk to you about it tomorrow. And you know, the next day he'd come back and be like, I couldn't quite figure out how to do it that way, but here's three ways to do something similar. And I'd be like, that's cool. Cause number two is actually more interesting than what I was thinking. Mm. You know, then we just kind of get this back and forth going. Um, so I don't, I'm not one of those designers who thinks they have all the answers. Mm. Um, in fact, I often find my clients will have the answer. They just don't know it. You know, mm. like it'll be something someone says to me in a meeting of it. Like, Wait a second. That's interesting. Um, mm. You know, like when I was, I remember a few years ago, I did this project with um, a high-end knife company called uh, Lucadia Knives. And they uh, were using this material, micarta, which is, which Westinghouse developed like in the twenties or something. It's, it's basically like compressed layers of paper that are embedded with resin. Uh, it's really, and it's a cool material, um, it was developed for like transistors and things like that in electronics, but um, it has some nice properties for a knife handle because it gets a little bit tactile when it gets wet. Mm. So really cool material. Um, and they were doing, they had this really great kind of shaping capabilities. And, you know, and I was just like looking at how they make, make the knives. And I was like, you know, it'd be so cool to kind of like, um, layer this material and often they had to layer it to get the thicknesses they needed and I was like well let's layer it with different tones mm. so that as you like shape through it you get this like topographical map mm. um, so you can see like where the handle of the knife is thicker and then where it gets thinner so you can like pinch it and get a good grip on it and they were like that's freaking amazing like where did you come up with that idea I was like from you from you for watching how you make the knives and I was just like what I just want to highlight this like this, that you're really thinking through the shape based on chef's grips. And I'm just thinking, how can I show that, show off what you do? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to approach it. Don't necessarily try and make things aesthetic, try and show the functional aspect in an aesthetic way. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I mean, without trying, to, without trying to sound like too Yoda-ish or anything, like I just feel like you have to kind of listen to the project and mm. the project will kind of tell you what it wants to be. Um, and I feel like I could see when I look at a product that doesn't isn't quite working, I could kind of see a designer that was fighting what it wanted to be. <laughs> you know, and it's just like if you just listen to it and you understand the parameters, like you can then push those parameters right mm. intelligently. And and those parameters are functional. Um, the parameters might be marketing in nature, right? In terms of the 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 brand persona. The parameters might be business in nature in terms of what that market is doing and what mm. isn't what is and is not acceptable in that market. And I look at it as like if I can understand as much as of that as possible. Um, I know I'm a talker today, but normally I'm a question asker. If I can understand as much as possible, um, then I can intelligently say like, okay, we could push beyond this a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I think as well with design, like as you're saying, it's all about re-educating the or educating the corporate on as to the value and you know constantly like evolving design in the world. But um, I suppose in a way, like as corporate 
develops a bit more they start to see more benefit in design and then it kind of changes the role of a designer because like i suppose in the past there's been a lot of circumstances where you could see the problems of corporate affecting the overall design outcome because they didn't listen to the design team they kind of thought that they knew what was best but it's interesting because of your point of you know experience a lot of the corporate people actually trust you to make the you know more significant decisions and yeah it's it's interesting hopefully it evolves to that in the future Mm. yeah I just look at it as like, I just want to help. And, you know, even in the case of ARC, you know, I remember the founder called me and was like, hey, Michael, like, we love working with you, but we think we want an in-house design because we just mm. love having, talking to a designer all the time. And I was like, that's awesome. And he was like, I thought you were going to be upset. I'm like, no, I'm, I, I did my job. Like, I basically did such a good job that you're like, I want to talk to a designer every day. Mm. And, and I'll be happy to help you. And he's like, you would help us hire a designer? I'm like, I'll be happy, you know, sure. And, and you know, coached him through like what questions to ask because he never had hired a designer before. Mm. So um, it's just, you know, to me, that's what being a consultant is. And, you know, with one of my clients, I'm finishing up an ad campaign for a product I designed. You know, that's not my education, but, you know, I was just like, I have some, some, ideas for the ad campaign based on all of the things that we did in the product development process and they're mm. like great we'll hire you to do that too and with another client i'm helping them establish a product development system like a, mm. a calendar with set dates and gates so that they can have a more predictable path and again that was just i was noticing like it doesn't seem like you guys have a set way you develop products and i think it would make everybody a lot less stressed at the company if you had a a, a predictable path that happened every year and they're mm. like great let's let's do that so mm. that's that's a design project too <laughs> yeah it doesn't have to necessarily be as simple as a product yeah. yeah but everything you see behind me like and people know me for this this kind of stuff it's it's the most tangible aspect of what i do mm. uh, and i'm not bad at it you know uh but that these are just you know, these are just tools, right? This isn't, I don't sell sketches. I sell ideas. Yeah. And so I always stay very grounded in that. The, I, I sketch well so that I could communicate my ideas well. Mm. Um, but if there's no idea there, then the sketch is just pointless. You know? Yeah. Uh, can you discuss any design trends or innovations that you are particularly excited about in the coming years in the industry? I think... Um, that's a good question. You know, I think I'm, I'm a little bit allergic to aesthetic trends. Mm. Um, you know, I see you could, you could really see it with Instagram and Pinterest, this like aesthetic consolidation in young mm. designers. And I would just really caution anybody to not get too set. Don't box yourself in, don't paint yourself into a corner. Um, because things change all the time. Um, and maybe I've just been doing this long enough to see like massive aesthetic changes, but also like you have to really tailor that aesthetic to the project. Um, otherwise you become this kind of one trick pony. And it's just like, you know, I can hire anybody to make a box with a few rounded corners and a blinking light on it. You know, you know, it's just like, don't get so sucked into like being this like Dieter Rahm's copycat mm. that you basically eliminate all of your value because because everybody knows exactly what you're going to do before you do it Mm. Uh, so i i would say um just look out for that 
And just like, you know, some designers get trapped in sketches, some designers get trapped in making the perfect render with the amazing dust bump map. And just remember, like, that's not what we do. We don't sell sketches. We don't sell renderings. Mm. Focus on ideas. Yeah. Right? And, and let the idea guide you. Um, I do think there is this kind of continuous trend that I've seen, macro, a macro trend, not an aesthetic trend. This continuous trend that I've seen throughout my career, which I think will continue, is that less people can do more things. Mm. Uh, so like when I started at Evo, for example, they were a young firm. Like I said, I was the fifth employee and they had a huge facility, like a giant shop uh, with a spray booth and like, you know, machinery and an office and a phone system and a receptionist. Um, and when, my, when I started my business seven years ago, I just had a, a laptop and an iPhone, you know, so, so the, the tools allow, you know, less people to do more. Uh, like I think of like, even like what I'm doing, like in, in a program like fusion, right. Where I'm like combining um, solids and surfaces, like that would be, it would be, and, and then just being able to like render in the cloud in the program that would have been like four separate software licenses, just like 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just amazing um, what we can do. Um, and I, I think that will only continue, right? Like, um, and whether that's like AI tools or, you know, increased use of 3D printing as, as rapid prototyping becomes rapid uh, manufacturing. Um, like, it's just gonna be all about this kind of like, in a way more efficiency, I'll put that in air quotes. It, I know it's an audio medium but it's in air quotes. It's, but I think the, the, the coolest part about it is just more ability to experiment. Hmm. Um, and, you know, me as a small studio, our practice is just my wife and, and I and a few contractors and we're able to do so much. Hmm. Um, you know, we're basically able to do like what Frog Design was doing in the eighties, right? So with just so, so many fewer people. So yeah. I think that, that trend will continue. Yeah, the world seems to be changing a lot now, even moving to more remote work. Like, obviously, you said you, you're big into collaborative working, but do you think that in the future, industrial design will, will become more and more remote? Or do you think it will oh. stay in its current state? Um, For sure. I mean, none of my clients are local. Like, all of my clients are, I'm in Portland, Oregon, which is in, if you're not in the United States, it's in the, like the top left corner of the United States. And my clients, my biggest clients are LA, which would be the closest. San Diego, Miami, New York, and Chicago. Mm. Uh, so literally every corner of the United States other than the one I'm in. Um, and so, and, and I do go on site, like all last week I was on site with a client in Manhattan um, doing a workshop, but we can, we can work from anywhere. Um, we could collaborate like this, mm. you know, sometimes collaboration is just being in having a Slack channel together and you know, just constantly bouncing files back and forth and you'll have, you know, engineers will be building a CAD file and I'll be taking screenshots and putting red lines over it and shooting it back, you know, 20 times in one day. Mm. Uh, and, and that's just as good as like being in the same room together. Yeah. Um, I think the key is to have the same mindset mm. um, because I feel like with the speed of communication um 
you know, people can be curt, sometimes accidentally curt, and it could come off as rude. So I'm also very careful to make sure that, you know, I'm verbalizing, I'm explaining things, I'm picking up the phone to check in, mm. um, and, and not just being like, uh, that sucked, here's a red line. <laughs> you know, you have, you have to be, because you would never do that in person with somebody, right? So you have to treat it like you're in person and and, and have that kind of politeness and, and, and manners. Sorry to say, but it's yeah. kind of, it's amazing how much of just being kind of like a trustworthy, friendly adult, how far that goes in, in terms of having a good business. Yeah, it's interesting, like the, the communication over digital and social media and things like that. It's like, it's very hard to, to express the way you feel sometimes. Like even the other day I was, I was um, emailing this person and I was trying to add humor and I realized if I didn't add any sort of, you know, a, okay. like thing at the end, it just, it didn't come across humorous. It was like more like direct and like almost insulting. <laughs> right. Yeah. Be very careful. But it's Yeah. It's really, I suppose that's the challenge of remote work to try and communicate yourself. Do you think with the metaverse that, that could become a thing in industrial design in the future? Or do you think that's more of a pipe dream? I, you know, I, I mean, I think just before you get off, before we get to the metaverse, I, I do think like, I'm a big fan of an emoji yeah. here or there. I'm a big fan of a GIF. You know, I know like younger people don't like GIFs anymore, but it's just like, you know, you just throw in a little like Michael Scott GIF into an email <laughs> before like, okay, it's being funny. You know, So I think it's like you have, it's on you to be, especially as a consultant, um, to, to really switch things up and, and, and alter your communication based on what works for the client. Mm. Uh, there's the metaverse you know I don't know you know I have a I have a a, a quest headset and um you know I've been playing with gravity sketch and mm. there's, there's certainly like a lot of promise um I'd say like uh I could be curious about you what you feel as you're in a different generation but like I just don't want it mm. <laughs> like like I don't, the way I work, and maybe this is just my like ADD designer brain, but it's just like, I've got like, you know, little stuff like all over my desk and I got little post-it notes with scribbles on them and, and I've got, you know, calipers and papers and there's like Pinterest open over here and there's this open over there. And, uh, and it's just like, and there's, you know, post-it notes on a board and it's the kind of the way I work. And I like to just kind of like, take it all in and mm. and look at it and it's never kind of like put away mm. versus like when I feel like when I work with a headset I'm like trapped into yeah. only looking at the thing I'm looking at it's literally all around me and then and then when I take it off it's gone right mm. uh, I can't just like you know if you put pin a sketch up you I'll pin a pin sketches up and then look at them two days later from across the room and be like oh that made me think of something um so I don't know, you know, I'm very, I'm open. I guess I'll put it this way. My, my final answer to your question, I'm open, but skeptical. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about it? I kind of feel the same to be honest. I, I have used gravity sketch I, for my final project. I use it to model a motorbike and for things like that. I just think it's amazing. Like the, yeah. the, the things you can do compared to like traditional CAD is just insane. But mm. as far as like the metaverse working environment, I think, I think I feel the same, like, maybe sometimes like let's say like we were collaborating it could be beneficial to be able to like kind of be in the same room working on the same product but i think generally day to day like the traditional approach is still better and it's still more engaging and probably better for like just idea generation even in general 
Yeah. Yeah. I was saying like I had, I was talking to another designer who was super pro about it and, and, and like very on the metaverse. And uh, he's like, it's great. Cause you can, you can, uh, you know, work with clients this way. And I'm like, so are you buying your clients headsets? He's like, what? They don't have a headset. Yeah. What do you do? Now? And this is your process. This is what you're selling is this. And they don't have a headset. And he's like, oh, <laughs> you know, just like, like, we have a lot of barriers to overcome before it becomes the norm. And maybe it will become the norm. I mean, you know, now we're, when, when I first, and, and just to show you how much it has changed Roman in 25 years, like when I first started uh, at Evo, like we all had a desk with a computer, but we also had a drawing table with like, mm. you know, T-square and everything. And we would do still do draftings by hand, full scale one-to-one, and then like fold them up and FedEx them to the factory. And so, and that was amazing because we could FedEx it, right? Mm. And, and um, so, you know, and it's so different now. So I can only assume that the pace will continue and in 25 years what i'm doing now is almost nothing like what i was doing 25 years ago i mean other than the thought process is the same and i still sketch and everything but 25 years from now i have to assume it's going to change just as much mm, yeah no i mean yeah i suppose with technology just constantly constantly evolves and yeah i suppose yeah. the, the future is very interesting it's terrifying but also interesting yeah i wouldn't consider myself an early adopter for tools though like i'm not i'm not like a tool driven designer and mm-hmm. and I, I feel like you could kind of tell some, like oh like you can literally if you look at like the history of product design you can see when like alias was invented mm-hmm. like, oh wow and then you could see when everybody like stopped using alias and went to solidworks <laughs> like you could see it and and that always kind of frustrates me and i don't want to i don't want my design to be defined by a tool yeah yeah, I suppose that's the power of sketching because like you're you can create a design completely on paper and then it's not really dictated by the parameters of CAD. Yeah. Yeah. And then if I can't build it in CAD, which is often like, you know, I'm pretty good, but like I, I'll reach my limitations, especially at my hourly rate. Mm-hmm. I can hire someone. Like if I'm like, I think this design would be better suited to be built in Rhino, like I'll just hire someone that's like a Rhino expert to yeah. build it. Yeah uh what's we're running out of time so i'm trying to think of bringing some good questions in at the end yeah uh how do you approach designing for different markets and cultures around the world because do you yeah, work internationally I, or do you generally only work with american um with yeah, u.s clients yeah i would, I would say i'm i mean i've worked with some chinese clients um i've worked with some korean clients um i've worked with some canadian clients so North American, uh, but um, you know, I I think I, to me, because I'm such a curiosity is kind of my thing. I'm such an open person. I again, I never come in like I'm the expert that's going to tell you how to do your business. You know, I come in with like a million questions, and so mm-hmm. um, for me, I actually struggle the most when the customer becomes too close to to who I am mm. does that make sense yeah because, uh so so for me it's it's the further the the end user is from who I am the easier it is for me to be objective and observant uh and be like oh that's interesting and but if it's like too much for me like if it's for you know I I worked on a, um kind of a high-end watch um 
which is like basically is for me <laughs> you know like this like really nice uh automatic uh self-winding timepiece and it's like you know me and the end user venn diagram was a circle basically and it was really hard because it's like i'm like you know for me anyway and some people everybody's a little different mm -hmm. but when i work with international clients it's like it's like completely objective right mm -hmm. and i'm like um and i i try to remind clients of that as well i, I remember i was working on this line of personal audio products uh a bluetooth speaker uh, in-ear earbuds and an over-ear headphone and you know we had outlined in the research phase this white space around um, kind of young women who were going to college basically like every other brand like oh like Bose has the like older professional guy you know Beats has the like younger more aggressive dude like but there was like no one that was like kind of focusing on building product for this this um young woman who maybe maybe like audio quality wasn't the most important thing to her but it had to work it had to sound good and it had to kind of like live up to her lifestyle so in other words like maybe the product wouldn't be treated the best it had to be tough and rugged but not like look tough and rugged you know hmm. it had to be implied and functionally there so anyway, long story short, we we developed this like, beautiful design language around this this end user that was super unique and and based on the research, and the first products were coming in off tool. So for those of you who don't know, like an off tool sample would mean like the the tooling will get cut, the metal the metal things that make the product, and they'll usually just shoot those products in black, no matter what the the CMF palette is, the color material finish palette. So the first products come back in all black, just, just as a review. And I show them to the CEO of the company, um, this guy, Jim, I, I, we're still, he's a great guy, but of course he's like a, you know, 65 year old wealthy white guy, basically just short, not to reduce him to one sentence, but for shorthand it. And of course, Jim looks at it and he's like, Oh, Michael, I love this. It's just black on black on black. And this is, we should make it like this. We should make it triple black. That's what I want. And I was like, oh, Jim, I didn't realize you were an 18-year-old girl going to Arizona State University. He was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I'm like, remember, that's who this is for. It's not for you. If you like it, we messed up because <laughs> she doesn't like what you like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and guess how many of these things you're going to buy? Zero, because you're the CEO of the company. You're going to get them for free, right? But guess how many of these she could buy? A lot. So do you want to make money or do you want to make in triple black because you like it that way mm. and he was like okay good point <laughs> and <laughs> it's just you know helping everybody to recenter around mm. like it's not about what i like it's not about what you like it's about what's right for the project mm. i suppose that's that re-education aspect we were talking about as well it feeds into that educating the client yeah yeah uh, i, I want to and that's what's going to lead us to making something new otherwise we're just going to end up with a bunch of you know, triple black products for mm. rich old white dudes. <laughs> I suppose that's the problem with design these days. Like, as you kind of mentioned with all these platforms, we're kind of just regurgitating the same design language over and over. And I suppose like with the pollution of like social media and, you know, the internet and all these things, it's a lot hard to think freely of these concepts. Whereas mm -hmm. like in the past, these like really famous designers, they had a lot less of these 
you know, design pollution in their life. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And and you think of like a designer like Sotsats, like they have like this very particular aesthetics and you're like, oh, that's like them or, and these very odd processes. Like I remember reading about Castiglione and how he wouldn't ever draw, he would write down his idea. And mm -hmm. his whole thing was like, if he couldn't describe the design over the phone, it wasn't good. Hmm. He would literally call up his client and describe verbally what the product was going to be. Yeah. And I think you had all these like very unique approaches. And I'm part of the problem too, because you probably, you know, like you said, you grew up looking at, at my, grew up, you went to school looking at my sketches, right? And my sketches are not right or wrong. They're just one way to do it. Hmm. And I want to show that, but I also hope that like, I hope it inspires you to find your own way to do it. Mm. Um, and and um, yeah, I think that's a, you're right, that the design pollution, that's a really interesting way to see it. I think you also see a lot of Instagram design. Mm. You, you see a lot of people who have a lot of followers on YouTube or TikTok or, talk or Instagram, but you dig into it and you're like, what have they really brought to production? Like, mm. do they really, are they just really good at a particular skill, mm. like gravity sketch or sketching? Uh, or are they actually good designers? And so mm. I guess I'd say to all your listeners, Roman, like question that, you know, when you're, when you're out there and the design pollution, to keep using your term is hitting you really ask yourself, is this good? Or is this just what I'm seeing a lot of? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's too easy to get stuck as like a render designer opposed to a, an actual functional designer. Yeah. Mm. Uh, just and I get it. I get it. It's like yeah. very, it's very seductive and that's not to judge anyone and like, nothing against the hot rendering like I love a hot rendering as much as the next designer but just really realize that that is just one moment in the design process and mm. our goal is to make something mm. yeah yeah the actual the actual most influential part isn't attractive like that necessarily yeah 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 just to finish off um do you believe your career as a designer will leave a lasting legacy after its conclusion and is this important to you um it used to be more so, you know, I think I used to think about it more. Uh, and now I just focus on trying to do the best work I can mm. and be helpful. Yeah. And I think that is actually what hopefully, I, I think if you're so focused on like being known and having a legacy, I, I get the sense that maybe that's not the way to have a legacy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's kind of like, it's kind of like being cool. Like if you're say you're you're cool, that's like the most uncool thing you could do. Mm. You're probably not cool if you oh, say yeah, you're. That's that's something that other people can ascribe to you. Uh, I think of like being a thought leader this way. One of my students, I teach a business and design class um, for this program called Offsite for a nonprofit called Advanced Design. Check it out. Uh, but one of my students is asking me, like, how do you become a thought leader? I'm like, well, not by going on your LinkedIn and putting thought leader after your name. <laughs> you know, that isn't it. Like, the first time I ever even heard the term thought leader was when somebody described me as one. They're like, this is Michael DiTullo. He's a thought leader. And I was like, I don't like Google, Google it. I had never heard of the term before. Um, and so I, I think the same about having a legacy. Like, I can't control that. Mm. You know? But ho hopefully I can be a good person and be mm. helpful. And, and, you know, like you started off this podcast saying that you had seen my, my work when you were in university and that like, that's awesome. That's, that's, mm. I hope it was helpful in some way, even yeah. if I just showed you what not to do. So. Oh yeah. 
Well, as well, like with the way uh, design is evolving, as we said, there's less and less of these people who are doing designs that really stand out in the market. And do you think that will mean that there's less people who leave a lasting legacy opposed to all these, you know, really amazing designers we've mentioned already from the past? I don't, you know, it's a great question. And, and like, I see like people chasing hard to like do work that's like what Dieter Rams would have done or whatever. And I'm like, he already did it. He already existed. You know, you're, you're, you know, it's like at, at, at Nike, there was this like, who's going to be the next Tinker Hatfield. It's like, there was only ever one. Mm. There's only ever one Michael Jordan. No one's going to be the next Michael Jordan. You have to like, you be yourself. And mm. I think, I think like that's what LeBron did so well is that he didn't try to be Michael Jordan. And so I think the same as a designer, that's not to say that I won't, I won't pursue kind of a minimalist aesthetic if that's what the project demands, but like, I'm not going to force that on everything either. Um, and yeah. I think, I think the other thing Roman is that it's risky, right? It's, it's so much safer to be like, Oh, I'm just going to follow this like Bauhaus minimalist uh, approach because that's right. No one ever complained about it. It's like, well, but maybe it's also forgettable. Mm. I love this one. One I remember reading this piece uh, by an architectural critic after the Guggenheim Museum was built in New York uh, City. And he said, the most beautiful thing about the Guggenheim is that it's the only Guggenheim on the block. <laughs> I thought that was beautiful because it's about context, right? Mm. Like, yeah, it's this amazing white spiral. That's, a, that's an art museum. But it's if you if you know New York City, uh, across the street from it is Central Park. So you have all this like beautiful nature, and then on either side of it, flanking it, were buildings from the 1900s. So it's like boxed in with these really traditional buildings, and that's what makes it amazing. Mm, the contrast. Uh, yeah, and and I think for me, there's as many right design solutions as there are people out there. Like ultimately, wouldn't it be amazing if we didn't have to pay for tooling and, and we could custom make everything for everybody. Um, and we could have these like wildly divergent solutions for the same thing. Um, and so I think that there's room for things that are more emotional and more expressive, uh, especially in the context of maybe things that are more linear and restrained right you when you put the, those things together it's the juxtaposition that's interesting not either one of them on their own mm. at least at least to me yeah that's a great way to look at it well yeah thank you for coming on the podcast michael and it's been really great to talk to you I, to be honest i never thought i was going to be talking to you uh, all these years back when i was in my first year you know browsing through instagram who know who, who thought a few years later i'd be you know chatting to you on, on zoom but yeah this is how this is how life progresses and yeah i really um grateful for all the people you've inspired over the over your time and i'm interested to see where you are when you're 70 years old designing still yeah thanks roman and i i look at it as like hey you know you're like okay at once you were a student aspiring to be a designer now you are a designer i'm a designer we're, we're colleagues now you know mm. so i think you know design is design is a profession but it's also a fellowship and, mm. and i feel like uh, there is a to me at least a sense that we're all in this together so thanks for having me on it's been great to talk to you yeah thanks michael but yeah best best luck with everything and i'll talk to you soon